Oh my, Blanca Fortress is <laughs> collapsing faster than Russian supply lines. Jeez. Wait. <laughs> okay, yeah. <laughs> It's Friday, March 25th, and this is the Dutch News Podcast, your weekly chance to catch up with what's been going on here in the Netherlands. I'm Paul Peters, Master Student in Civil Engineering and Binnenhof Archaeologist. And with me today is Gordon Derek, Contributing Editor at Dutch News and Plofsluisie Mac Plofsluisface. <laughs> and this is, this is probably the best job title <laughs> I ever gave you, I think uh, this Gordon. is definitely a strong contender for the best ever job title I've ever had. Yeah, actually. I yeah. think so. Yeah, um, yeah we, we, you, you've got I need to explain this though yeah i just happened to be reading something about um uh, the the Plosslaus, which i would never heard of before um in the, no, in, in some article in the weekend newspaper about uh what's it called it's called the vatalini there's this kind of yeah. um defensive line that sort of runs south from amsterdam that's basically was it designed the, the was it the old vatalini or the new one i think it's a new vatalini this one yeah yeah it's a yeah. new vatalini and basically it's kind of like a defensive line that sort of floods yeah, the whole stretch of uh, land if the Netherlands ever comes under attack and the, the kind of um, the, 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 the piece de resistance of this is a thing called the Plosslaps which is this huge kind of uh, like sort of or bridge or kind of concrete monument stretched across the Amsterdam Rhine Canal which was designed which was built purely for the purpose of being blown up if the <laughs> if country ever came under attack because the, the, the debris inside this sluice would then drop down and dam up the canal so that um, ships couldn't get through. And that's the only no. reason is it only exists in order to be destroyed, which yeah. I thought was wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, and it's and it really looks like this huge concrete block. Well actually two blocks over the over the canal. And there's no road over it, there is nothing yeah. over it. It's just this this enormous block of concrete and you're really wondering if you look at it, what what on earth is this? But yeah, it's just meant to be blown away and basically it's it's the fastest um yeah, a uh, uh, slouch too close, right? Because yeah. you know you blow it up, and then gravity does the work. Exactly, the you rest of the, the work, the, the, the floor, and it's kind of it's, it's loaded up with like debris and rubble and stuff. Yeah, and just, just fill up the canal. But in about nineteen, in, sometime in the eighties, uh, it was becoming an obstruction to commercial shipping. So rather than blow it up and destroy it, because it had become a, um, <laughs> a national monument by then, they actually rerouted the canal around it. So it doesn't actually block the canal at all anymore. It just sits there. In this, yeah, in this yeah. kind of a bend in the canal, to, so that ships can get past. Yeah, yeah, and the Nieuwe Waterlinie itself is also quite fascinating. It's basically, yeah, yeah this enormous ring around Amsterdam that uh, w- w- is supposed to be flooded in case of an invasion, mm. uh, and uh, in the hope to, uh, you know, um, yeah, slow or or block uh, invading forces uh, in the Netherlands, of course. Uh, it was built, I think, a, a, a decade or so before World War II. Mm. Uh, I think it was partly flooded when the Germans invaded in 1940. Of course, the Germans had a couple of things called airplanes, which yeah. <laughs> which rendered the <laughs> yeah. the entire Vatalini uh, obsolete. Yeah. But uh, yeah, at least it's still there. And uh, yeah, it's a, it's a pretty fascinating uh, piece of engineering. And yeah, um, yeah there, there, there's also an old Vatalini which was built uh, in the in the 17th century and. Uh, the, the, that that's, that was also that was actually also used when the French invaded when Napoleon invaded, oh. uh, but in Napoleon invaded in winter yeah. and uh, contrary to Russia never invade Russia.
Russia in winter. Mm-hmm. But if you invade the Netherlands, do it um, uh, in the winter because the, the entire Waterlinie was uh, yeah frozen. Yes. So okay, t- they could just walk so over it. Did, and, did the uh, army yeah, skate across? Did, uh, did they like? Did they do the Elstedentocht? in order to get to or to conquer Fiesland <laughs> the yeah that would be interesting to see uh, the French armies do that yeah yeah yeah, but uh, yeah, the, but but also I think uh, I'm right in saying the Plosslaus uh, actually wasn't finished before World War Two. So the Germans finished it. They said they thought it was such a great oh, really? idea. Yeah, the, the <laughs> occupying Germans kind of took took on the project. So they thought it'd be useful for us to defend yeah, our, our occupied Netherlands if uh, anyone attacks it. But again, that didn't really work because the Allies also had these things called airplanes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, nice idea, but uh, yeah, the uh, execution was uh, yeah. Not yeah. that well. It's kind of after its time, really, wasn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and uh, Paul, what uh, yeah, uh, what have you been uh, digging up around the Binnenhof then in your Indiana Jones uh, mode? <laughs> yeah, I haven't been personally digging around <laughs> the Binnenhof, but uh, a team of archaeologists have because the Binnenhof is now finally closed, also for uh, you know civilians. It, 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 it was basically uh, an important uh, road, right? Uh, the the, yeah. the Binnenhof. You can uh, you can just walk there, but uh, they finally closed it off in preparation of the uh, renovation the uh, uh, of the of the uh, parliamentary complex so you can now no, no longer visit the um, uh, the 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 Riddersaal, uh, the knights hall uh, it's all sealed off uh, but that does allow uh, the archaeologists of the city of the hague to finally do some archaeological work because they have never have done that in the past um, the archaeological surface of of the hague only exists for a couple of uh, decades now and there was never a um, they never had an opportunity to do a thorough um, uh, 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 archaeological investigation. So they're finally going to do that now. They already dug up some interesting stuff. Um, uh, the foundations of a building they never knew existed before. Some, um, uh, some, um, uh, I believe it was a can from around 1150. So that's older than the the, the Riddersaal itself. Right. Uh, so also uh, pretty pretty impressive. So yeah, it's um, we're gonna have to wait and see what they're going to dig up. But it's probably going to be a lot because uh, the Binnenhof has been the administrative center of the Netherlands for, well, almost a thousand years now. So the, mm. there's bound to be some stuff uh, 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 hidden underneath um, the street stones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. M- m- maybe they'll f- f- they'll find a hidden stash of uh, 13th century face masks from some kind of dodgy <laughs> deal that somebody did in Roman times. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, all this talk of digging kind of uh, vaguely brings us on to uh, the, 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 somebody who's been uh, or, or a football club that's been digging quite deep holes for itself uh, this week, hasn't <laughs> uh, it, Paul? So what's what's the op of the week? Yeah, the op of the week is that Mark Overmars joined the staff of football club. Antwerp FC only six weeks after he left Amsterdam football club Ajax after he was accused of sexual harassment. At the beginning of February, several female staff members of Ajax came forward and complained about Overmars' behavior. He had broken acceptable boundaries and in at least one case had sent photos of his private parts to female co-workers. Uh, the allegations came to light in the aftermath of the scandal surrounding TV talent show The Voice of Holland, where several coaches and a band leader were accused of sexually harassing contenders. The news of Overmars' new job sparked outrage on the internet, with many people wondering how female employees at Royal Antwerp must feel. Uh, the club's manager Sven Jacques 
added fuel to the fire when he was quoted saying that Overmars matched with the club's norms and standards. Uh, Overmars, who will uh, have his salary in Antwerp uh, doubled, told NOS that he is very sorry about what happened and that he wants to go on with his life, adding that it won't happen again. Uh, yeah, it was it, it was mostly the celebratory yeah um, uh, announcement that uh, uh, a Royal Antwerp um, issued uh, that sort of sparked the the outrage and sparked the OPEF and. Yeah, if I was over Mars, I, I would have waited at least a couple of more weeks because, yeah. uh, you know, six weeks was, was way too soon to uh, to just go on with your life uh, after you have fallen uh, uh, in disgrace from, you know, your position. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, but, but there is a new development as we are recording this on Thursday evening. Uh, well, Antwerp has said that they acknowledge that they made a crucial mistake in the way they uh, announced the appointment of uh, Mark Overmars um, and that they um, uh, uh, put the safety of their workers uh, uh, as the utmost priority and that they have a zero-tolerance uh, policy on sexual harassment. And the uh, it, it should be noted that these statements only came out after several sponsors um, pulled back yes. from... Uh, sponsoring yeah. the team so yeah, yeah it's so, so um they, yeah so they have a zero tolerance policy on sexual harassment uh, which is how they came to appoint a guy who'd uh, resigned from his previous job six weeks earlier after being accused of uh, sexual harassment exactly and he found out so, being accused of it but he actually admitted it and said he, he was very sorry it, yeah. and then all of a sudden the remorse just kind of just drained away from him as soon as he got a new job with a big fanfare and he said uh, yes it won't happen again and please don't mention it anymore and uh, the anxiety you could almost sort of see the blur as they tried to sweep it under the car- carpet as fast as possible and yeah, just exactly. say, let, let's yeah. pretend this never happened and move on. It was, it was, it was quite staggering. I would say, the only thing I think that happened here is that the news of Overmars's, how Overmars left Ajax had travelled to Belgium by Belgian roads. So they, hadn't actually, <laughs> they hadn't actually caught up with it yet. Yeah, well, well, they were they were fully aware of, of what he had, he had <laughs> done, had but be, yeah, yes. they just didn't yeah. care. That's basically, yeah. they, they only started to care after uh, some sponsors left. So yeah, yeah. it's um, interesting developments. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, and they also, of course, said that uh, Marco Vaz- Mars was a, was a very good fit for their for their values of the club as well. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, yeah. Which also makes you kind of slightly worried about what that, those right? values might be. Yeah, exactly, yeah. This week, the Volkskrant uncovered new damning revelations about the role of then-health minister Hugo de Jonge in the ongoing Seward Gate. The Netherlands waved goodbye to the last corona restrictions. The Russian invasion of Ukraine continues to affect Dutch spending power, while the Netherlands is preparing for thousands of Ukrainian refugees. A new controversial book about Anne Frank's betrayal will be taken off Dutch shelves. And we have Dick Lawyer news, Yay. finally. Yeah, it has been way too long. Yeah, no, but, well, I was worried there's never going to be any more Dick Lawyer news, but <laughs> Dick Lawyer has uh, yeah, come up with the goods again. Has done it again. The Volkskrant revealed on Wednesday that then-Health Minister Hugo de Jonge did play a role in a controversial deal between the Ministry and a fake charity of media personality Seward van Linde, despite earlier denials. To give a little recap, at the start of the pandemic, van Linde set up a non-profit organization that would buy face masks in China to prevent a shortage of masks in the Dutch healthcare sector. Promising he was doing this om niet, or for free, he used his substantial influence to get help from many Dutch multinationals such as KLM and Randstad, and eventually sold 40 million face masks to to the health ministry. These later turned out to be unusable due to their low quality, and the Volkskrant later revealed that Van Linde earned a whopping 9 million euros with the deal that came to be known as the Mondkapjes Affair, 
or Seward Gate. Health Minister Hugo de Jonge always denied any involvement with the deal, but according to documents and WhatsApp conversations made public after a Freedom of Information Act request by the Volkskrant, this turns out to be untrue. De Jonge asked senior ministry officials to contact Van Linde, who is also a prominent member of de Jonge's CDA party. De Jonge referred to a series of critical tweets by Van Linde about the government's mask purchasing strategy, saying that, quote, it's better to have him inside pissing out than outside <laughs> pissing in. A few that is from uh, Lyndon Johnson, wasn't it? Yeah, so, it is. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Who famously uh, brought his enemies on board um, yeah. in order to uh, you know silence them. Yeah, so uh, keep an eye on them and to say, yeah, to, to try and control what they or mitigate what they said. Exactly. Yeah. A few days later, the 100 million euro face mask deal was cut between Van Linde and the health ministry. MPs have demanded a debate about the new revelations. And now housing minister De Jonge has said the suggestions made by the Volkskrant are inaccurate, but he declined to comment any further pending the outcome of an official investigation into the scandal. So he basically used a Boris Johnson strategy <laughs> here. <laughs> yeah, he, almost, yeah, he didn't quite hide in the fridge, but uh, no. <laughs> effectively he did. So What's well, so interesting is that in the course of when the scandal was unraveling, was unrolling, Dion always uh, pointedly refused to speak about it because he said that face masks are nothing to do with my job; they're not part of my remit. They're yeah. the, uh, that they're another ministry. Now it turns out, of course, that he was actually um, had his had, was getting his fingers dirty with this. That he was actually involved in the whole decision to bring Sivan on board. But now he's got another excuse lined up. He says, "I'm not going to comment because of the ongoing investigation." Yeah, and yeah. on top of that, he is not uh, no longer the responsible minister for this. He is now yeah. housing minister. He, uh, yeah, he left the, the the health ministry. So, yeah, constitutionally, the one who <laughs> the person who is responsible for this mess is uh, the new health minister, Ernst Kuipers. Yeah. So, um, yeah, he can hide behind that as well. So, uh, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see how they are going to play this. If he, if if MPs demand that he goes, then you know he can always say, I, I I'm no longer the responsible minister anymore what are you going to do so yeah, yeah that's um, that's that's going to complicate things yeah. um, a little bit complicate I think. things potentially i mean Ernst Kuipers, who is a data minister could end up having to resign because of what uh, hugo de Jonge did in, in stitching up a deal as a cdr minister with another cdr party colleague yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, which kind of stinks to high heaven, really, in so many ways. But uh, yeah, 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 it really is. And uh, yeah, the suggestion is now made, indeed, that uh, Sigurd van Linde, who is a CDA member and who also worked not anymore, on he's the, not, he's, oh, he's not anymore. He yeah. was at the time he was a CDA member. He also wrote, uh, partly wrote, co-written the uh, CDA's party manifesto. So yeah, people see him or, or regard him as this influential figure that had, uh, you know, Hugo de Jonge's number on speed dial and yeah he came up with this plan to sort of yeah get rich uh, of the backs of the of the taxpayer then called Hugo de Jonge and uh, yeah made the deal happen that's that's basically the suggestion what we what we what we see now um yeah and and he and two of his colleagues were basically each pocketed 20 million from this deal right so, yeah so they, they pocketed uh, in total 20 million in yeah, total and, between them sorry yeah, yeah, 20 yeah, million between, yeah. not 20 million each and there's more details coming out uh, there's a book coming out uh, on friday tomorrow and i believe you've already pre-ordered it and you're going to be <laughs> standing at midnight outside the virtual bookstore <laughs> to download it yeah I, I literally did that i also have to admit that i in the first time of my life i bought an actual copy of the volkskant <laughs> in order to read this article um yeah there are ways to you know 
illegally require these uh, sometimes these articles, but the usual ways were blocked by the Volkskrant. Uh, uh, yeah, v- very very, uh, very smartly, very smart of them. Uh, so I, I I literally had to buy a Volkskrant uh, um, a copy to in order to read the article, which I gladly did because if I'm going to support any sort of journalism, <laughs> then this is the type I I, I really want to. So uh, yeah, that, being that, the type that no stitches up Siva van Linden and Hoover de Jonge. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, you sa- as you said, this book is coming out. Uh, two journalists of investigative website uh, Follow the Money wrote a book called Sirets Millioner or Sirets Millions, and in it they write that the limited company that was used in the deal was set up by Van Linde and his colleagues weeks before any proposal was made, and even before any formal talks between them and the ministry had started. And that indicates that Van Linde's uh, story that the company was founded on the request of the ministry is false, and that uh, his claims at the time that the deal was being arranged via a non-profit foundation were also untrue or at least they were thinking about you know doing it in a different way the public prosecutor is also currently investigating the deal uh, following an official complaint by staffing agency Randstad they provided several workers for free to what they thought was a non-profit venture so they feel um, yeah like they they have been scammed uh, yeah they're misled basically yeah yeah yeah, and kind of co-opted into this money, yeah, the, 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 this uh, uh, voracious money-making scheme by Sievers and his friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and yeah. Uh, yeah, we have to we have to take into account the situation at the time, right? We had this. We were at the beginning of the pandemic. There were there were all sorts of signals that we're going to have we're going to have a massive shortage of face masks in healthcare. And in order to provide the healthcare workers, we desperately need a face mask. And mm. for some reason, the government wasn't wasn't able to to arrange them. Um, and following this news, it was Siwat van Linde and several others who started this, or at least they claim started this. Um, yeah. Charity, this non-profit organization, in order to you know, um, and the idea was you know the the the, the government is unable to do this. Let's uh, get a team of of of, of businesses and uh, multinationals uh, together, and they can arrange these things very quickly. And that was the idea. And, in, and indeed, they they arranged this very quickly. These forty million yeah. uh, face masks that these turned out to be you know not of uh, sufficient quality. That's a different story. But I think um, if we take all this into account. And and um, if it's true that Seward's um, um, uh, endeavor was sort of uh, like a like a Russian tank uh, was getting stuck into this bureaucratic mud, uh, then if Hugo de Jonge had stood in and then um, uh, was successful in dragging this out of the bureaucratic nonsense and getting this deal done, and if these face masks turned out to be of excellent quality, yeah. then Hugo de Jonge would have been the hero of the day, right? Yes. He, he didn't know that these face masks were going to be of, of terrible quality, and he probably didn't know that uh, Seward was going to scam everyone, uh, including the ministry. So mm. I think that the number one bad guy in this story remains Seward van Linde. Um, I think Hugo de Jonge really wanted to be the hero. Uh, unfortunately for him, Seward van Linde turned out to be a complete fraud. And uh, yeah, he's basically being dragged uh, into into this... Uh, yeah, into this uh, into this well. Yeah, um, yeah, into this, this well dug by. Uh, but uh, yeah, you yeah. can kind of see the Hugo de Jong is the kind of the guy who I think you know the the the, the con man sees as just a perfect um, chill because he, he was so kind of obsessed with his personal image yeah. and the PR implications of not getting face masks in time that he actually would do anything to make sure he got a face yeah. mask deal. And when someone who kind of he knew vaguely from his CDR contacts came to him with this idea to you know to to get these. 
um, uh, these business these businesses to, to, yeah, to, to these businesses to buy in these uh, um, these face masks. He kind of saw this as his salvation. Like he would yeah. be like the hero, you know. He he would he would have like the 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 press off his back because he he really felt under pressure from the media to get something done and to be seen to get something done as well. And he was just like he was basically just like a sitting target for somebody like yeah. Stevenson Linden to come along and just uh, pull pull the wool over his eyes and pull off a massive scam. Especially so. because Sievert von Linden had such influence in the public opinion, right? Yeah. As a uh, yeah influential media figure. So yeah, um, in hindsight, uh, he was a perfect target for. <laughs> for a scamming uh, a taxpayer thief, yeah. I think. Yeah, yeah. unfortunately, um, that's exactly what came along. Yeah, and yeah. I suppose we should say as a footnote as well. That, I mean, they bought in forty million face masks. Do we know how many of these face masks have actually been used as protective uh, gear? I think a couple of hundred thousand, it's right? Six hundred and thirty thousand. Yeah, out yeah, of forty yeah. and million. And the rest is still in storage. The rest is either in yeah. storage or it's been thrown away because it wasn't up to standard. Yeah. 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 Um, now, uh, what what I really think um, Hugo de Jong is, is, we can blame Hugo for, is that he lied. Uh, if he was, yeah. if he had told the truth that he thought that at the time that he uh, had helped um, um, Seward von Linde, uh, you know, get this deal done because he thought he was doing the right thing, then then definitely people wouldn't have been so mad right now. I think, and um, yeah, lying as a politician, lying as a minister, is really a death uh, uh, sin. Uh, so yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think that's the thing we can we can blame him the most for. Yeah, and he also tried to cover it up and shift the blame or deny responsibility yeah. and say, you know, <laughs> it's not my it's not my ministry, it's not my um, yeah. it's not my dossier. When actually he was uh, he, he, he had his fingers all over it. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, so we can't completely let Hugo off the hook here, unfortunately. No, no, his shoes are still scuffed badly <laughs> by this whole experience. Yeah, with uh, his his shoes with uh, with terrible uh, <laughs> prints on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the, the clash badly with Sievert's shirts. <laughs> it's just been, a, it's been an absolute sartorial meltdown. This this whole story yeah. hasn't it really? Well, and what also contributes to the 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 impact of this story is because is that Seward von Linde truly is a really hated person on the yes. internet, right? <laughs> a lot of the anger is also, you know, the, the years of buildup of anger uh, directed to Seward von Linde is also yeah. channeled into this scandal, I think. So uh, if this was someone else, then we wouldn't have uh, uh, heard about it so much, I think. Yeah, he must be one relieved man when Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. So finally it takes the heat away from me. <laughs> Are you describing Boris Johnson now? <laughs> Coronavirus hasn't gone away. That was the warning from Health Minister Ernst Kaupers on the day the Netherlands decided to act as if coronavirus had in fact gone away. <laughs> the last social restrictions, including masks on public transport and testing before going into large venues, were formally dropped on Wednesday. But Kaupers told Opain that people should continue to be careful and take tests as appropriate. And the isolation rules also remain in force, so if you get a positive PCR test, you're still expected to stay home for five days. He also said restrictions may be needed again if a new wave of the virus or a new variant appears in the autumn. But I mean, what are the chances of that happening? <laughs> yeah, so um, th the pandemic is over, I assume? Um, well, not if you look at the figures. Um, there's still around 2,000 people in hospital with coronavirus. 
Uh, okay, yeah. some of them are not seriously ill with it. They're just tested positive while they're in hospital. Um, but nevertheless, they're taking up hospital beds. Uh, around 140 people are in intensive care with coronavirus as well. The good news is those fingers are levelling off and the number of infections is dropping steadily by about 25% a week. But, you know, we're still seeing an average of 40,000 infections uh, per day and they're still quite high in the over 50s group. And Carapas himself acknowledged that that was the main reason the hospital numbers were relatively high. So we saw this kind of post-carnival rising cases in the younger younger people, people in the 20s and 30s. And then a week later, we started seeing cases rise in the 50s as they kind of passed it on through the generations. Yeah, and um, um, we talked about the arrest of our favorite Vapi, uh, uh, the yeah. uh, Corona charlatan, um, um, dreadlock Rasputin, Willem mm-hmm. Engel. Uh, what's, uh, what's the latest news on him? Uh, he's still in custody. Yeah, he's, oh, good. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he was arrested, uh, as he said last week, for allegedly posting incendiary messages on social media. Uh, on Friday, he made his first court appearance where the public prosecutor said he posted seven messages that incited other people to commit offences. So that's mm. a crime he's been formally charged for. Uh, the judge remanded him for a further 14 days in what his lawyer, good friend and crowdfunding mule, Jeroen Bols, said was a frontal attack on critics and opponents of the Ritter regime. Make of that what you will. Um, yeah. I just think it's lovely that, you know, Engels spent two years sort of going out on the streets uh, uh, purportedly fighting for our freedoms that hadn't actually been taken away. And then once uh, the restrictions are lifted and everyone just goes back to living as normal, he gets his freedom taken away. It's quite nice. It, yeah, isn't that the, the <laughs> nice, uh, nice irony here? Indeed, yeah. yeah. And uh, yeah, his his followers, uh, the Wappies, I, I uh, often take a look at uh, what they've been up to uh, on the internet, and I see that a large share of them uh, is is still talking about uh, the coronavirus restrictions. There was even a demonstration in Amsterdam last weekend uh, against mm. the corona restrictions, even though, you know, all of them <laughs> were, were gone. Yeah. Um, well, but, there were uh, three yeah. days left of uh, a small number of restrictions. So that's I guess right. you can but see that, why people uh, go out in the streets to demonstrate against that. Exactly. Yeah, okay, that's right. Um, I also see that some uh, traditional uh, topics are uh, getting back into the spotlight. I saw some tweets on 5G. I also even saw uh, some um, warnings against uh, radical Islamic terrorism. So, yeah, nature truly is healing. Life is getting back to normal, yeah. We're getting back to just the usual regular madness. Indeed. And, of course, standing up for Russia as well. Yeah, yeah. The new puppy called Celebre. Yeah. (laughs) Prime Minister Mark Rutte met with Turkish President Recep Erdogan in Ankara this week in preparation of the special NATO summit in Brussels that's, uh, yeah, I think it just finalized. We're recording on uh, on Thursday. Yeah, they they, they just had a press conference just before we started recording. Okay. Um, After the meeting, Rutte praised Erdogan's attempts to end the war diplomatically and stressed Turkey's political and military importance to NATO. The two leaders also discussed their country's trade relations, agreeing to boost trade between Turkey and the Netherlands from 11 billion to 20 billion in the coming years. This was the first time since 2012 Rutte visited Ankara. The Turco-Dutch relations uh, had been strained in the past years, particularly since 2017, but the Netherlands denied entry to a Turkish minister who wanted to campaign for a yes vote in a constitutional referendum that was uh, only days before the Dutch general elections and that mm. really boosted uh, according to um, commentators really boosted Rutte's popularity and perhaps even made him win the election so uh, yeah that was uh, was something that it's a nice uh, bit of timing out. for Rutte wasn't it yeah he exploited that opportunity masterfully yeah and yeah. of course Erdogan also got in a, um, a big went in a big rage about it and uh, accused the Dutch of being vestiges of Nazism 
I yeah, seem to remember. Yeah, so he yeah. gave a kind of Putin-esque speech. But, um, it really was, yeah. yeah. Thankfully, he uh, didn't send his tanks in to invade, uh, <laughs> you know, um, in, in through Fenlo to, to invade the country. But uh, yeah, the, the, the yeah, it really led to to a diplomatic row, didn't it? Uh, yeah. The the Dutch um, uh, embassy in Istanbul closed for for a couple of years. I also Im, uh, remember an image of um, uh, Turkish demonstrators in Istanbul with a, uh, a, a apple knife uh, cutting oranges. <laughs> <laughs> Stabbing oranges, I have to Stabbing say. Stabbing oranges, yeah. Yeah, out of protest of, of, of uh, how the Netherlands was uh, yeah, uh, uh, handling Turkish protesters. Um, it was an enormous diplomatic row. Uh, and um, uh, But luckily, the, the relationship is now back to normal again, yeah. thanks to Putin. Um, yes, yeah, no, no, yeah, and now Russia's in Ankara uh, pra- pra- praising um, you know, Edwin's uh, steadfast commitment to NATO. So it's yeah, amazing how yeah. these things uh, yeah, can, can turn around. Can turn around, right, yeah. There's a war on. Yeah. Um, the NATO members, uh, the NATO member states, have agreed to send extra troops to the easternmost countries uh, of the military alliance. Um, so yeah, so uh, we're going to see some, uh, we're going to see some more Dutch troops, uh, you know, in Lithuania and uh, countries like that. Yeah, and I think Slovakia as well. I think there's a, um, some ah. troops going to Slovakia. So, yeah, um, but um, yeah, all this is a bit far away. Uh, what's uh, what's what about the real worry um, uh, for many Dutch people, which is uh, the effect, the impact of the war on spending power? Because they've been talking about that in the trade Kamer. Yeah, they uh, they talked about it for two days. Uh, <laughs> the debate lasted two days. Uh, energy and fuel prices continue to rise due to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and MPs have called on the government uh, to do more to compensate people for high energy prices uh, during Tuesday's debate on maintaining spending powers. They also asked the cabinet for an increase in the tax-free allowance for driving to work, which is currently set at 19 cents per kilometer, uh, and they uh, also asked them to look into giving more people up to 800 euros. Uh, to compensate them for soaring energy prices. Uh, The payments are currently being made to around 800,000 households with a gross income uh, of up to 2,200 euros for a couple and 1,400 euros a month for a single person. Uh, The cabinet is prepared to look uh, into this uh, proposal uh, from next year as well as cutting fuel taxes from the beginning of this year. Um, We cannot take away all the pain for everyone with these measures, Social Affairs Minister Corinne van Gennep said, during the debate the measures uh, which have been chosen she said are the maximum that can be done in the short term mm. i have to say uh, this debate was excellent to um uh, 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 remember the names of the new cabinet ministers because we have yeah. so many of them i still <laughs> do not rem- uh, know the, their names by heart uh, and uh, yeah these sort of debates are always a good opportunity for that to, to uh, yeah so uh, who's who in the new cabinet yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, but, but have you been um uh, filling up your tank in belgium much because i know that this has been the Belgians have already brought in their fuel price cut, right? And it's like a it's a huge difference now between the cost. Yeah, prices. I think it can be fifty cents per liter, right? Yeah. Uh, the Dutch, uh, the Belgian fuel prices are you know always lower because uh, their taxes are much uh, lower than uh, uh, than 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 uh, Dutch petrol. Um, but uh, the Belgians have cut uh, VAT taxes. Um, uh, last week already and that mm. meant that the difference is now so high that uh, I heard stories of people from Utrecht uh, yes. driving to Belgium in order to fill their tanks and bring back uh, a couple of jerry cans with them yes. um, so yeah it's um, 
Um, if you are a if you own a, a petrol station at the border of, of, of the Netherlands and Belgium, then uh, you you either had a very good week or a very <laughs> bad week. Yeah, yeah, depending which side you're on. Yeah, so you had a very good a very good war. I wonder what it's, what it's like. Um, there must be filling stations in uh, our favourite uh, b- 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 border mashup, uh, Bala Nassau, right? Must be. Yeah, I wonder how <laughs> that, that must works. be one. <laughs> yeah, I wonder how that works. Yeah, yeah. perhaps there's a, a petrol station with, uh, with 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 one side of the. Yeah, a pump pet- on the Netherlands side and a pump on the yeah. Belgian side, yeah. Exactly, yeah. How, how is that going to work? I don't know. It's uh, that's an interesting thing. We should uh, we should send an investigative journalist uh, to that. Uh, uh, do you have anything to do next weekend, uh, Gordon? <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm actually otherwise occupied. Otherwise, I would be straight down to Berlin, Nassau. <laughs> um, there's also some uh, more negative news coming out from the SAPB. Yeah, uh, consumer confidence in the Netherlands has dropped dramatically uh, since the start of the war in Ukraine. Uh, That's what uh, National Statistics Agency, CBB, has said on Wednesday. The consumer confidence index has fallen to minus 39, which is almost as low as the record of minus 41 at the height of the financial crisis in 2013. Uh, The average over the past eight years was minus eight. Consumers are pessimistic about the economy and the economic prospects for the coming years. They say they are negative about their own financial situation and are less likely to spend money on major purchases. And earlier this month, the CPB already warned that the Netherlands could end up in a short recession due to the war. Yeah, yeah but that's going to be, I think that's not going to be until next year, right, the recession, because we still... The economy yeah. is still doing quite well as it recovers from coronavirus, so it take a while to yeah. in. I like I, I like the fact that um, sort of mild pessimism is the kind of default state for Dutch consumers. That that seems accurate to me. That seems really accurate. Yeah, <laughs> what 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 always tends to be the case in in these sort of uh, questionnaires is that uh, Dutch people are always slightly pessimistic about the whole situation, about the whole country, but they're always slightly positive about their own um, situation. And there's a discre- discrepancy about that because you know collectively you can't be. Uh, happy about your own situation and negative about the 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 the, the entire country, but that's that's the case. That's yeah. uh, uh, that's always typical for for um, yeah the Dutch state of mind. Yeah, it's kind of a so typical so, so yeah, a psychological phenomenon. Perhaps people sort of like to think that they're doing slightly better than average, right? Yeah, yeah, that's, 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 yeah. It's not doing very. Yeah, they think like the country's not going very well, even though generally yeah over the last ten years it has done quite well. But they think that because they think like that they have this mentality, it's not doing very well. But they're doing okay. So they must be you know they must be working harder or being more successful than the average person and that makes me feel good you uh, uh you hit the nail yeah. uh on on dutch uh, <laughs> mass psychology i think here yeah recessions and nuclear winters are hard enough to get through without the gnawing sense of regret that you never got around to sponsoring your favorite podcasts on patreon while you could so spare yourself the ignominy by becoming a patron for as little as a euro, a dollar, or a pound a month. Your donations help us to help you stay up to date with the latest political developments, op-hefs, and the inevitable sixth wave of coronavirus that's coming later this year, <laughs> and we'll do our best to make sense of it all. As ever, we are always extremely grateful to all our patrons and the people who support us through thick and thin, and as a token of our thanks, we always give all new patrons a shout-out on the podcast, and everyone can ask us a question frankly at any time but uh, it's always nice to hear from new patrons tell us a bit about yourselves and uh, what you're particularly puzzled about in Dutch society 
So if you'd like to join our loyal band of sponsors, go to www.patreon.com. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com slash dutchnewsnl. I might even um, give away my second uh, voting pencil. Oh, wow. Uh, because I, I have a second one. I have a spare one. I think they just reused the scenario they had for last elections, and they just reused it for this time. Yeah. And it also meant that everyone who voted in Delft got a second uh, voting pencil. So, yeah. Okay, so the first patron to message us will get Paul's... Um, a spare pencil yeah we will send it to you that Paul personally voted with and has got his fingerprints on it <laughs> yeah, so feel privileged and, and probably <laughs> some corona uh, <laughs> aerosols yeah, yeah that yeah, is the downside so. the government is planning to waive work permits for Ukrainian refugees from the start of next month the European Union has already agreed to give Ukrainians special residential status for at least a year so that they can go to school study and look for work and now the Dutch government says it will ease the rules on working in the Netherlands. At the moment, employers have to apply for a licence to hire people from outside the European economic area and prove they couldn't find a suitable candidate within those borders. But Social Affairs Minister Karin van Genep, there she is again, <laughs> said uh, she wanted to make an exception for people who've fled the Russian invasion so they can provide for themselves while they're living in the Netherlands. That's that's all good news for the Ukrainians, but what about other refugees? Yeah, and uh, the Ukrainians are also being given 60 euros a week living expenses, or 135 euros if they manage to find accommodation with a Dutch family. Um, all this goodwill has, uh, you know, is all very welcome and uh, wholesome, but it has kind of raised the question, if we can do all this for the Ukrainians, uh, why can't we do it for other people whose wars aren't on our television screens every evening? So suddenly all the talk of testosterone bombs and Anzach and the Werking has kind of given way to a much more kind of humane view of refugees and a more realistic view of the fact that they're actually fleeing for their lives from war zones. Jaap Felemar, the mayor of Vestervolde, told Newsio this week that local authorities were applying clear double standards. Vestervolde is a municipality in Kronia where the Apple refugee centre is located. He said, uh, it's great my colleagues in other council areas are queuing up to provide housing for tens of thousands of refugees from Ukraine. But it's shameful that no other local authority at all has offered to provide care for refugees from other countries. And it's going to get worse because next Friday, April the 1st, 13 local councils are due to end their contracts with the Refugee Accommodation Service COR, which will cut the number of available beds for non-Ukrainians by 2,500, just as we're actually busy trying to find 50,000 beds for Ukrainians. So there is a really clear contrast here. Former Socialist Party MP Sadet Karabulut also contrasted junior Justice Minister Erik van der Burg's welcoming words to Ukrainians with uh, the Fefe Day Party's hard line on immigration in recent election campaigns. She said she hoped the experience would prompt politicians to create perspective for a humane European policy towards refugees. Yeah, and uh, what the VVD party would say is that they are all in favor of opvang in de regio, um, in the vicinity. Yeah, and they say yeah, Ukraine is in the vicinity of the European Union. It's 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 uh, uh, more in the vicinity than Syria or Eritrea or other countries where we, we have seen uh, floods of refugees coming from. Uh, so that's the argument uh, in favor of helping Ukrainians uh, more than, than people from other countries. Um, a previous episode we heard from uh, Andrew uh, Tegeler uh, from Kharkiv. Um, he uh, spoke to us on Skype, or to you actually. Yeah. Um, we are hearing from him again. 
Yes, uh, if you listened to the podcast uh, two weeks ago, I think it was, uh, I spoke to Andre, who lives in Konya, uh, talk about his trip to Kharkiv, which is his native city, although he hasn't lived there for, for many years, um, because he went to fetch his mother, who was uh, obviously in danger because uh, the Russians were about to invade, and uh, move her to a, to a town in a safer part of the country, in western Ukraine. And of course, he arrived literally as the war was breaking out, um, managed to get her out of Kharkiv before the real bombing started. But then, of course, he was stuck there because uh, the Ukrainian government said that all men of fighting age, which was anyone under the age of 60, had to stay and uh, you know prepare to defend the country. However, we can tell you there's been an update. He's back at home now with his family. Uh, that's because the Ukrainians relaxed the rules of the border to create more exceptions for people in particular circumstances, including Andrei, who uh, obviously had to travel uh, to escort his mother um, to uh, safety in the Netherlands. It did take him two turns. The first time, he said, and uh, the, the guards weren't aware of the rules, so they turned them away at the border and had to go and find a hotel in the border town. It was too late to get back to the town where he was staying uh, and then they had to try again the next morning but they they made it and it was a 15 hour road journey back to the Netherlands um, uh, and a month after uh, Andre left what he thought was be a trip of a couple of days uh, he's back home and there's an update to his story on the Dutch News website and we will link to that in the line notes yeah very impressive story uh, indeed it was so uh, definitely worth reading it yeah, yeah, and it, it, it is definitely very, very interesting. His thoughts about how things have changed almost unimaginably in just the space of a month uh, from Ukraine being a peaceful, modern country to a place where some cities are now being literally just bombed to rubble. Yeah, the images of uh, especially Mariupol um, uh, th- that we've seen, uh, this this large city with uh, with all these uh, apartment blocks basically being destroyed by the constant shelling by the Russians. It's just, uh, it's just crazy to think that this is just happening uh, only a couple of thousands um, kilometers away from us, uh, yeah. closer than, than Madrid. The Dutch publisher of a controversial book on the betrayal of Anne Frank has withdrawn the book after a detailed rebuttal by a team of historical experts. Ambo Ennis's publishers apologized in English and Dutch and said that based on the conclusions of this report, we have decided that effective immediately the book will no longer be available and bookstores should return their stock. Meanwhile, the granddaughter of Jewish notary Arnold van den Berg, who was accused by a cold case team and author Rosemary Sullivan of betraying Anne Frank, called on HarperCollins to stop global publication. At a presentation in Amsterdam on Tuesday evening, given in English for the attention of a worldwide audience, eminent historians refuted the claim that van den Berg betrayed Anne Frank's family, as well as other Jewish people who were also in hiding in the uh, annex of um, the Achterhuis on the Prinsengracht in Amsterdam. They have published a peer-reviewed report criticizing the argumentation and the use of historical sources by a cold case team that took six years, artificial intelligence, public subsidy and the help of a retired FBI detective to reach its conclusion. The historians claim that there is no credible evidence that there were lists of addresses of Jewish people in hiding. They produced evidence that months before the raid on the secret annex, Vandenberg had gone into hiding himself in Lare, and say an anonymous note accusing him contains factual inaccuracies and is unreliable. Since the book was published in January, there has been a storm of criticism from historians. Uh, family members have also expressed their criticism and distress, and the Gold Case team has since January defended its conclusions, saying that the criticisms have felt like a witch hunt. Mm. Yeah, imagine how uh, how the notary uh, must have felt. Exactly, um, yeah, yeah, the family must have felt. This has just been an absolute disaster for the 
for the publishers. They produce this book to enormous fanfare and under under enormous secrecy as well. Remember the whole kind of contracts that the um, the book reviewers had to sign, swearing that they wouldn't uh, re- release any details and weren't allowed to discuss it with experts before they printed um, you know, their news stories. And of course, that turned out to be the downfall because they didn't actually test the evidence sufficiently before they before they reported on it and it turned out not to be any evidence or that or the evidence was uh, been you know um not properly interpreted yeah it really was the book's uh, untergang uh, yes <laughs> yeah it, uh, it, yeah it all seems very unprofessional of of this team of historians and these uh yeah they these cold case teams with all sorts of forensic experts to just claim this and then yeah, write this down in this book, and they they had investigated what was it almost fifty scenarios or thirty scenarios or something. Thirty scenarios, isn't it? And they spent like yeah, spent like six years researching this. And yeah, and they basically said yeah, the twenty nine twenty nine of these uh, scenarios uh, are very implausible or 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 impossible. So that must mm. mean that this one scenario uh, that's left over must be the real one. That's basically what they said. Yeah, it was quite clear as soon as someone actually analysed it, there were gaping holes in the argument. But I guess they kind of felt a bit. Like who could younger with the face masks so they felt under pressure to produce a result and as a result yeah. they kind of leapt conclusions and kind of skimmed over some, or, or ignored some quite big red flags and crucial details that might have um made them uh, behave a bit more cautiously yeah yeah and if they would have said yeah of all the scenarios that we've investigated this one is the most likely then they would have been much more honest i think but yeah you know that would, wouldn't have made um, uh, interesting headlines uh, across the globe which to be fair they did manage to uh, cause a lot of uh, media attention uh, with that book yeah only to uh, to have it shut down after yeah uh, someone yeah, else uh, looked a little bit more closely to uh, to their findings yeah so kind of rather savagely backfired on them yeah it really did yeah the book has turned out to be a giant um plof slouse that's uh, now exploded <laughs> above their heads <laughs> it really did yeah <laughs> ronald kuman looks set for a return to zeist as national football team manager 18 months after he left to take up his dream job as manager of barcelona but the dream turned to a nightmare. The club was swimming in debt, Lionel Messi left, Barca slid down the league table, and last October, Kuman was sacked at 25,000 feet as the team flew back from a defeat at Rio Vallecano. But the Canfe Bay confirmed this week they were in talks with Kuman to replace Louis van Gaal when the veteran coach retires after the World Cup in December. The um, great disappointments is really the uh, running theme uh, in this podcast episode, I think, right? Uh, <laughs> it is, yeah. First we had yeah. Sigurd van Linden's deal, then we had uh, Anne Frank's book, and now we have uh, Ronald Koeman's, uh yeah, dream job at uh, at Barcelona, yeah. But Koeman still is a very popular choice, isn't he? Yeah, certainly with the players. Uh, he, had a, he had a good spell when he was uh, manager last time for two years. Um, he took the Netherlands to their first uh, tournament in six years. That was Euro 2020. But then, of course, he wasn't around for the finals, which was delayed for a year because of coronavirus. And in the meantime, he'd uh, slinked off to take his dream job at Barcelona. But uh, team captain Virgil van Dijk said he had a fantastic time with the national team last time Koeman was in charge. Uh, that's not really a surprise because uh, Koeman made van Dijk uh, team captain. Louis van Gaal also said he thought Koeman would make a fine successor. With typical modesty, van Gaal said, A year ago, I was the only experienced coach available to take the job. And soon that will be the case for Ronald. And Van Gaal also didn't mince his words about the World Cup. No, he was giving a press conference ahead of uh, the upcoming friendly matches next week against Denmark and Germany, which, to be honest, are a bit dull and meaningless. Uh, so <laughs> Louis decided to spice things up by taking a swipe at FIFA for awarding the World Cup to Qatar. 
He yeah. said it was a ridiculous decision, and he went on, the idea we're playing in a country to develop football there, as FIFA says, is bullshit. <laughs> it's all about money and FIFA's commercial interests. So Gasp. <laughs> yeah. Who would have thought this? <laughs> Finally, this is revealed by, by Van Gaal. Otherwise, we yeah. would have uh, fell for, for, for all of FIFA's bullshit here. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Van Gaal also said he turned down offers to sit on FIFA's ethics committees in the past because it was a pointless exercise. <laughs> yeah. uh, Louis Van Gaal, incidentally, has since been uh, struck down with the coronavirus, so he hasn't been able oh. to attend training sessions. Wow. So, yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, you're not allowed to, to attend training sessions in a wheelchair with coronavirus, uh, unfortunately for him. Um, no. It was Van Gaal in the wheelchair, right? So he was in the golf buggy, wasn't he? He, he? he was getting off his bike. When he turned up at a training <laughs> session, he fell and he broke, uh, I think it was his ankle, but I can't be absolutely sure. Uh, and anyway, he had, to, he had to attend the match um, in a golf buggy. And then yeah. um, there was a big row because they turned out they didn't have disability access for, for the managers who so had to sit in the stand. He couldn't get to the, hmm. uh, get to the dugout. They, they couldn't wheel him across the pitch in the, and, and back again during the halftime interval. They didn't have enough time, they said. <laughs> so he, so he, so he, to he, stay, he uh... couldn't give the halftime team talk. Hmm. Yeah, and speaking of uh, dramatic statements, uh, why has Amsterdam cancelled a statue this week? This is my favourite story of the week, I have to <laughs> I thought it might be. Yeah. Uh, this is the Fantel Memorial, which uh, stands in front of the Olympic Stadium in Amsterdam, and uh, the council removed it. Uh, it was erected in 1928, which is the year Amsterdam hosted the Olympics, and it depicts a competitor giving the Olympic salute, uh, which, unfortunately, looks exactly <laughs> like the Nazi salute. <laughs> is it with the right arm or the, or the left it's arm? It's with the right arm raised, uh, okay. uh, yeah, outstretched. So the wrong arm yes. in reality. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So the statue was uh, recently uh, defaced with red paint, and the slogans "fuck Nazis" and "fascists die" were painted on the wall of the stadium behind it. Uh, the council already said it wanted to move the statue to a less prominent spot inside the stadium, but the uh, process has been held up because a local conservation society lodged an objection. Defenders of the statue have argued it was put up before Hitler rose to power, so therefore it shouldn't be seen as a Nazi symbol. But um, further research revealed that the Olympic salute, which was introduced in 1924 by Baron Pierre de Coubertin, was quickly adopted by Benito Mussolini as the fascist salute. So it did hmm. have uh, far-right connotations after all. Yeah, and uh, the, the Dutch Olympics was in 1928, right? So they had four yes. years of, uh, uh, of fascism uh, before that, uh, before the, that the statue salute. was erected. Uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and is there any other news about ancient monuments this week? I suspect here you're referring to the latest Dick Lawyer news. I absolutely am. <laughs> yes, uh, Dick Advocat is back again. He's come out of retirement for the <gasps> 290th time, I think. Uh, <laughs> yeah. This time to babysit Utrecht's inexperienced new head coach Rick Kraus. Uh-huh. Advocat, who's now 74, which is twice the age of a Kraus, is joining the club's technical staff until the end of the season. It's not the first time Utrecht have called on his troubleshooting skills. Advocat was appointed interim coach at the end of the 2017-18 season and successfully steered the team through the European playoffs. As we've said many times in this podcast, you just can't keep a good dick down. <laughs> no, no. He's, he's always coming back to haunt you, uh, Dick Lawyer. He is. He's never yeah. finished. I think uh, Yeah, he, he'll be managing <laughs> football teams from beyond the grave. I think so too, yeah. Well, I'm glad that he's back. Yeah, me too. The place wasn't the same without him. 
That's uh, all that we have for you this week. This podcast was a production of Dutch News, which can be found online at dutchnews.nl. We will include links to everything we've talked about today in the liner notes. You can get in touch with us by email to podcast at dutchnews.nl. And if you want to help us out, please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating. You can also back us now on Patreon at patreon.com slash dutchnewsnl and earn yourself a free shout out on the podcast. My thanks to Gordon Derek, and we'll be back next week. I'm going to take off my shirt because it's getting hot underneath my blanket fortress. Uh, okay. Don't think I'm going to do a strip to you. So Please <laughs> I don't. don't want to. No, do you, do I don't you want don't, to do don't end up like Mark Overmars here. <laughs> oh, crap. Uh, okay. Right. Oh, my blanket fortress is <laughs> collapsing faster than Russian supply lines. Jeez. Wait. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yes, 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 it's fallen to pieces like a like a Russian warship. <laughs> exactly. Uh, we're making some good jokes. Yeah. Unfortunately, <laughs> we can't choose any of this. Um, <clears throat> and then we <laughs> haven't even started with the Anne Frank story. Oh, um, God. <laughs>